Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you're writing a period spy drama set in the 80s, details matter. At least they do to the creators of FX's The Americans. They chart the date and time of each scene on a 1983 calendar so they can get every detail right. We really have a great clip of a TV show that we want to put on in that scene, but it was on a Wednesday night, and we just won't use it. We're we don't just do uncompromising, it. <laughs> even though nobody but the three of us in that room looking at the calendar would ever realize it. Join us each week during Season 3 of The Americans for the Slate TV Club Insider Podcast. Search for Slate Americans in your favorite podcast app. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Acura, the presenting sponsor of the 2015 Sundance Film Festival. Check out the all-new Acura TLX at Acura.com or test drive one for yourself at your local Acura dealer. And by The Jinx, the life and deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, starting February 8th, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Nice Singlet Edition. It's Wednesday, February 4th, 2015. On today's show, Foxcatcher is the new film from the director Bennett Miller. It stars Steve Carell and Channing Tatum. And then the Riot Girl band Slater Kinney is back with a new record. People love it. We'll discuss it with Slate's own Jack Hamilton. And finally, we'll talk Super Bowl ads with Slate's Seth Stevenson. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right. Well, Foxcatcher is yet another newish movie that we didn't get to upon its release, but we are catching up with now thanks to the impending Oscars. It's directed by Bennett Miller, and it stars Steve Carell. Uh, It's based on the true story of the heir to the DuPont fortune who takes an intense interest in the Olympic wrestling team and to that end becomes patron of the United States team. In the run-up to the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, it also stars Channing Tatum. Uh, Why don't we listen to a clip? Mark, you have been living in your brother's shadow your entire life. It's time. It's your time now. I know what you mean. Do you? Because everything that I've done, I feel like has somehow been credited to Dave. It's time for me to distance myself from him. You know, become my own person. So that was the film's two main characters, essentially. Steve Carell plays John E. DuPont, the wealthy and weird heir of the DuPont chemical family. Uh, And Channing Tatum plays Mark Schultz, uh, one of a duo of wrestling brothers who've won Olympic medals and had been training together. But in the scene, DuPont is urging Schultz to break a bit from his brother and, and help him lead an elite wrestling squad. And that was a very slow and pokey and austere clip to start our show with today, but it is not an inaccurate view of the tone of the movie, right? Yeah, I mean, this is whatever you think of this movie, whatever your assessment of it in the end, it is definitely an austere, somber, and slow-moving 
experience that demands a lot of patience of the viewer. And for me, I'm not sure always paid that patience off. But, you know, I came out of this movie afterwards feeling that it was powerful, feeling moved by it, wrote a basically positive review, although one that expressed, again, some confusion as to exactly what the movie was trying to accomplish. But I can't say that it sat that well with me in the months since. You know, like there, there's been a lot of pushback about some of the representations of the, the relationship between the John DuPont character and the Channing Tatum character and, you know, whether there was a little bit of a sort of um, scary gay bad guy vibe to the to the homosexual or more homosocial kind of tension between them. Anyway, hearing those those criticisms after coming out of it, I did start to think, like, what was this movie doing? What was it about? I'm not sure I liked it as much as I, I thought I did, although it sort of got all the elements of a really good sort of sports drama. It's, and we should we should note that it's based on a true story. You know, John DuPont was a real guy. He really did take this interest in the American wrestling team in the late 80s and early 90s. And um, the story has a bizarre conclusion, which we won't spoil. I did not know the conclusion before I watched the movie. And it was, and it was much more powerful because I didn't know how it was going to end. But I did, uh, my experience of watching it was to wonder, to admire the craft and basically enjoy it but kind of wonder why we were here. Why was this story being told with such austerity and import? Yeah, I mean, Julia, what's so interesting about that is that it's a Bennett Miller movie, and here's a guy whose two previous efforts were so sure-handed and unmistakably confidently directed, but also unmistakably confidently chosen source material. So he made Capote first, which was obviously a triumph, and he made uh, Moneyball, which was even though it wasn't the most obvious book in the world, nonfiction book in the world to turn into a film, he did kind of, I thought, a beautiful job with it. He had a hit with it. Uh, Brad Pitt was quite good. It was, again, a very confident movie. Uh, Given those two data points, what he's doing in Foxcatcher has to be deliberate as well. I mean, presumably he has access to all kinds of material, all kinds of stories. He wanted to tell this one. Why did he want to tell this one? I mean, I found the movie quite affecting, it's the pathos of the Carell character trying to become something that he isn't through this wrestling team and the kind of horribly repressed and cold relationship to his mother. I mean, it's actually something you don't see a lot in, in American popular culture, which is a depiction of the American aristocracy, right? The American sort of industrial aristocracy. Because you know, unlike England, we don't have a, we, we really don't have a landed aristocracy or an ancient titled aristocracy, you know, the way Europe and, and, and the UK does. What we have is this kind of pseudo aristocracy that came out of exactly, you know, what the DuPont fortune was. It was a chemical fortune, um, you know, c- came out of the Robert Barron era. And its legacy in American life is so bizarre in a way. And I, I, I was grateful to see, to get this kind of, if, if slightly perverse and emotionally twisted, uh, window into it. I was I was grateful for it, and it somehow r- rang true to me. But yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, I mean, Dana, your review you compared the movie to Citizen Kane and sort of other. Well, more that Bennett Miller is, is maybe aiming for that kind of <laughs> zone. Sorry, right? Yes, you compared the movie to Citizen Kane is loaded. Not that you compared it favorably to Citizen Kane, or you suggested it achieve the heights of Citizen Kane, but in sort of a. a classification exercise, this is a movie that is interested in similar territory, which is like how weird and twisted are America's crazy rich men. But I, one other thing that, that both you and Wesley Morris noted in the, your reviews of the film is that it is strangely elusive. Like a lot of the important emotional shifts among the different characters and their decisions and, and key moments and passages in their evolution along this arc happen off screen. I mean, Really a lot of them, yeah. You almost feel, and I think, it, I, think I agree with you, Steve Miller is such a... Uh, competent and and excellent director that I almost feel that it's an intentional choice to have the experience of watching the movie be like wrestling. Like you feel, it feels elusive. It feels like it's slipping out of your hands the whole time. And, and the movie is poetic and beautiful in how it portrays wrestling. I mean, I haven't watched that many wrestling movies and I haven't watched that much wrestling, but the there's an opening scene where you see Channing Tatum as Mark Schultz and Mark Ruffalo Stevens and Turner fave Mark Ruffalo as his brother in a in a really wonderful performance and they meet at a for a practice session and before really saying anything to each other have this elaborate physical dance with each other that is part like cracking each other's vertebrae part hug part stretching part massage and then just sort of seamlessly turns into sparring bout and the the like slipperiness and 
fluidity of wrestling as a sport feels like it's in the experience of watching the movie too like you you have a hold of it and then it goes away and you have a hold of it and then it goes away and I could sort of recognize and appreciate that metaphor but I'm still not quite sure what it was delivering to me through the vehicle you know I think what hit home to me is you have this great American family the DuPont family you know we recognize the name we recognize the company and you know what is it internally? What did it produce? It produces this creature of total confusion, right? This is where this fortune building and empire building has, you know, what here's what it's devolved onto is this heir who has no avenue of identity whatsoever open to him, apparently. And he sees one in wrestling, and there's an enormous pathos in that. His mother clearly is belittling, you know, to the point of almost total castration and cold and withholding. Played and so by Vanessa sees, Redgrave, we should say, in a couple really strong scenes. Magnificently. And so, you know, you, I, I felt as though one felt as the viewer his longing for you know, masculinity and, and bonding and homosocial bonding quite acutely, even though it's a, a withdrawn, you know, by design, a very withdrawn performance on the part of Carell. Um, you know, but but he really and the and the color palette of the movie is very muted. It's almost strangely washed out, and and pallid. The sound of it is is kind of muffled, and uh, they're they're it's defined by silences. Um, you know, it's a tough movie in that way. But I, based on his previous two movies, I think that this was very intentional. And um, you know, I can understand why a lot of people wouldn't connect with it, but it struck me as very, the pathos of it was very real. No, I think that's right. And I think when the movie gets to its startling conclusion, you you have this like accrued emotional sense of how this man's life has been curdled by his wealth and his isolation. And it's powerful. It is emotionally powerful. I think that I liked it. I think that I was slightly befuddled by it, but I liked it. Like, I think I would tell people to go see it. There's no question that that trio, that sort of love triangle among the two brothers and the John DuPont character played played by Carell, is a, is a, is a really strong, it's a strong trio of performances. But I'm not sure whether, you know, when this movie first came out, there was a lot of talk about this being Carell's big moment and that he would be nominated for an Oscar. In fact, there, there was no nomination and there hasn't been much discussion of that performance afterward. And I wonder whether this performance that he gives, which is, you know, based on this huge prosthetic nose and a different kind of gait that he developed and he gained weight. And it's one of those very transformative, you can barely recognize Steve Carell kind of performances. And I don't know, I just, I wonder whether the sort of freakiness of this character and the fact that he is sort of framed in the movie as a freak and that a lot of true facts are left out about the life of John DuPont that we don't have to get into, but that would somewhat contradict this image of him as this, you know, lonely loser with absolutely nothing in his life. I I wonder whether that has worked against the movie in some way. Yeah, I did wonder whether we really needed the whole prosthetic nose bit. Like, I did find it more distracting than I thought. But I don't know, if if you compare... I mean, this is just an, this is sort of maybe a stupid way to think about this movie. But if you compare the like hand it to you on a plate exposition sandwich of imitation game, which we all really got worked up um, reviling a couple weeks ago, like I fundamentally enjoyed and respected this movie's elliptical qualities, like what it means to love your brother, to feel supported by your family or hemmed in by your family, what it means to find independence, what it, how can you ever find independence if you still fundamentally care about what your your forebears and, and parents and parent figures think of you. Like, those are complex and slippery and important things. And I, I ended up feeling like this film was sort of like a I don't know, powerful tone poem on those themes and maybe not as satisfying as something that felt like it had a clarion, crystalline point. It, it doesn't feel like that at all. But it, I don't know. It stuck with me. But it, it, there's moments when it tries to grasp after, I think, something much bigger than just the story of these three men and what did or didn't happen between them, right? I mean, the the, the, the final words of the movie, and this isn't giving anything away, but it's, it's a crowd at a wrestling match chanting, USA, USA, right? And then the very first speech that we hear in the movie is the Channing Tatum character uh, going to show his gold medal, giving a speech to a bunch of middle schoolers and bringing his Olympic gold medal and talking about America. And, uh, so, and, and also in the relationship with Carell throughout that relationship. There's all these kind of Reaganite references and, you know, sort of talk about the, yeah. uh, right? I mean, about sort of... Yeah. No, I mean, if it if that is really the motivating theme of the movie, it's 
pretty despairing. I mean, because he's kind of saying there's a dissociation of masculine sensibility in the country that is like really deep and really pathological, right? You've got these kind of working class, and this is how they're portrayed in the film. It's not my judgment about anything or anybody, but in the film, this kind of working class, warm, bonded group of young men and the brothers, and I think Ruffalo is fantastic in this movie. And yet what's interesting is he, he Channing Tatum, when he's kind of called upon to go visit the DuPont heir and his magnificent estate, is totally out of his ele- element. He has no context within which to place this you know, otherworldly presence who's summoned him. And, he, you know, he, he, so in a way, he kind of doesn't have any kind of cultural reference for what the DuPont reality is. These two things are, are meant to be so painfully dissociated from one another. You know, the kind of much more white working class, like, you know, up by your own bootstraps, wrestling kids, and this heir who has a very pseudo Anglo. Uh, estate and lifestyle, uh, you know, to the extent that the movie takes place in the 80s against the backdrop of Reaganism, it's a pretty despairing diagnosis of the condition of not only American masculinity, but American culture, right? That there's there's some really profound lack of commonality between this pseudo aristocrat and this, you know, working class hero beefcake. And you see nothing in between. I mean, the closest thing you see to anything in between the two of them is is Ruffalo and his family, uh, I would say. But I just think he's too confident a director not to have done this on purpose, in which case the movie is really, really dislocating and, 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 and people haven't known what to do with it. Dana, I remember when I first heard about it, people were saying, oh, Bennett Miller is about to break as the biggest director in the world. You know, this, this movie's going to be huge. I think it maybe it, it made a bigger splash at Cannes than it did anywhere. Subsequently, people just haven't known quite what to do with it. Right, because it's a movie that doesn't really ingratiate itself to the viewer at all, right? I mean, it doesn't, It doesn't, as Julia says, show you many of the, the biggest transitions and the biggest decisions that the characters make. There's a, really a lot of wrestling in it. We haven't talked about that at all. But, I mean, essentially the whole middle part of the movie is about training at this fox catcher wrestling emporium that, that the Steve Carell character has set up. And so there's really a lot of time of just watching dudes wrestle. And so I, I can I can completely see how this didn't, didn't pack them in at the box office. Yeah. One thing that strikes me with your economic analysis of the film, Steve, which I think is astute, is um, I feel like the other movie that you and I particularly thrilled to as a like telling economic document of our time also featured Channing Tatum in Magic Mike. And I feel in some ways like this is a like, you know, the other parentheses or something. It's like a pair with that movie in an interesting way. I would like to watch a doubleheader of these movies because I do think it comes at similar economic questions about the United States from the the 1% rather than the 99 or the 0.1% or the 0.01% or, or wherever we are uh, when we're in DuPont land. And I also think it speaks, it's, you know, an interesting testament to... Um, to Channing Tatum as this like kind of American everyman who seems to have the richness and depth to invest like his hulking meat men with um, like the future of our great nation. Uh, and I think he pulls it off. Like his, he's he's like a dissonant weirdo in this movie in a compelling way. And even the way he carries his Hulk, which he usually does with elegance and grace, like he, even though he's plays a talented wrestler in the film, he walks around with this carriage of a man who's just uncertain of his place in the world, and it's it's pow- it's like a powerful piece of physical acting. Yeah, it's really I love the way he plays the contrast between how well his character Mark Schultz knows and understands his body, and how well he knows and understands his mind and his soul. Right? There's just a huge gulf between those two things, and he's this completely lost soul. I did also just want to say that the best scene acting wise in the movie, I think, and 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 one that makes me sort of hope that that Mark Ruffalo gets the best supporting actor Oscar that he's up for is that great moment that he has to address a camera when this documentary is being made about DuPont, right? Sort of a commissioned documentary that's like a puff piece about John DuPont. And uh, and Dave Schultz, who's just started working with him, has to sit down and address the camera and tell the camera what kind of mentor John DuPont has been to him. And just the internal struggle that you see and how difficult it is for him to sort of plaster on a fake smile and say that this crazy man is a, is a great mentor. I, I just love that scene. It is beautiful. Mm. All right. Well, the movie is Foxcatcher, directed by Bennett Miller, starring Channing Tatum and Steve Carell. It's not yet available on streaming or disc, but uh, if you can find it in a theater, uh, I think I think we'd all enthusiastically tell you to go see it. Let us know what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. 
All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have? Slate's Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Acura. Acura understands the power of performance, how every moment should be infused with emotion and every movement should evoke a thrill. A great performance is what Acura wants drivers to experience every time they get behind the wheel, which is why Acura is a proud presenting sponsor of the Sundance Film Festival. Check out the all-new Acura TLX at Acura.com or test drive one for yourself at your local Acura dealer. All right, Steve, what's next? Slater Kenny is the Riot Girl rock and roll band from the mid-90s. They're from Olympia, Washington, and they've reunited to make a new record, No Cities to Love. As Jack Hamilton, Slate's pop critic, says on Slate magazine, generation ago, a trio stormed out of the Pacific Northwest to become the most critically acclaimed rock band of their era. They rode the crest of a fiercely independent, now legendary musical subculture, steeped in the aesthetic iconoclasm and righteous angst of the best punk rock, but with the twist of the ineffably unique Jack, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. I should say you're not only Slate's pop critic, you're also the assistant professor of American Studies and Media Studies at the University of Virginia. Let's dig right in. I have to say that I always admired Slater Kinney more than I loved them. Tell me why they were such an awesome rock and roll band. Um, well, I always, I don't know. I think that, uh, for me, I think they really embodied kind of the best elements of punk rock, and while also sort of exceeding it in, in interesting ways. I mean, a band that I always think of as somewhat analogous, and this is, in, in my world, uh, the highest praise I can offer, but I really think of them as kind of the American version of The Clash, like a band that took the sort of righteous energy and the politics of punk, but also um, pushed musically, just was constantly pushing it into further and further heights. And Slater Kinney, I think, really just, they were so inventive. They were great songwriters, um, as well as, you know, as their careers progress, uh, really sophisticated musicians as well. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we, so they have a new record out, and, uh, and mm-hmm. as I understand it, also a box set. So why don't we, in order to kind of get our, you know, ears wet here a little bit, why don't we pick a track off of the new record, talk about it, and then maybe pick a cl- couple of classics off of the box set? The, a track that I really like off the new record is the title track, um, which I think, is sort of this classic Slater Kinney kind of earworm um, that's it's called No Cities to Love, you know, kind of uh, loud, muscular, powerful, yet at the same time really clever and really sticks with you. Let's listen to this for a bit. The honor city is no cities to love. The honor city is no cities to love. It's not the cities, it's the weather we love. Yeah, I've really been enjoying this new album and maybe this is exactly what you want when a beloved old band gets back together after a decade-long hiatus or near decade-long hiatus or maybe it's disappointing but this album sounds so much like the Slater Kinney I loved in the yeah. late 90s like I the Hot Rock that their album from 1999 which yeah. I think is not one of their most critically acclaimed necessarily but was is my Slater Kinney album it's the one that I listened to on repeat I mean it's probably one of the five albums I've listened to more times than any other albums in the world and I listened it's it's such a wall of dense sound that I was mm-hmm. able to write to it which is like very there are very few albums that have lyrics that I can write to but to me that album is just like unthrottled pure energy and I listened to it on pure repeat for like two months while I wrote my senior thesis in college <laughs> um, but like these songs, they're inventive. There are intricate little details in them. There are some sonic touches that feel um, like a little bit more like beep boopy and electronic than some of their albums have in the past. But um, it just, it like sounds the same. It's like, oh, great. They made more songs like the songs I loved, which I feel like isn't always the experience you have when a band you loved uh, gets back together. I don't know, Dana, what was your, you're also a Slater Kinney partisan, right? Yeah. Can I just start by telling my Slater Kinney story of my first introduction to them? Because the very first day I heard of them was also the the first time I saw them live. And they were just such an exciting band at the time. It was 95. So their first self-titled album had just come out. 
And at the time, I was dating a musician who always wanted to go hear music in clubs, and I was constantly being dragged to hear this band or that band, sometimes to do a favor for a friend to go hear their band. And it was just not a thing I was excited to do that night, put it that way. It was one of those things where you're just being dragged to go stand. I think it was a straight-edge club, you know, so there was nothing to drink. And it was just one of those things where you're just standing (laughs) on a cold concrete floor thinking, like, I'm here because my boyfriend dragged me. Then the second the band came out and started playing, it was was a pure rock and roll experience. I mean, they were just such charismatic performers on stage, and I assume still are, that within seconds of this show starting that I had been dragged to, I was, you know, jumping up and down in an ecstatic frenzy, and I've loved this band ever since. I agree, Julia, that this this album really does, in terms of, like, the size of the songs, they're these little three-minute, you know, just power punk songs. They're all just little perfect short gems, and it really sort of does sound like classic Sleater-Kinney, which I guess we should be mourning that they haven't grown and they're not doing some sort of 13-minute soundscape with sampling or something, but <laughs> but I love these little pop gems, and I do think that lyrically they have matured, although the lyrics are never the first thing you understand or hear in Slater-Kinney. You sort of have to go back and, and listen a few times, but what they're singing about is, I think, stuff that they would not have been singing about in the 90s, whether it's, you know, some of this, these songs are about the financial collapse and some of them are about being a parent, and I think they, they bring in sort of elements of this moment in their lives and this moment in our culture's life that would not have been there 10 years ago. Jack, I'm curious how you would describe this album as either departing from or aligning with their original aesthetic and how they have or haven't developed. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, a lot of the critical response to it has been in the, along the lines of like, oh, it's like, it's like they picked up exactly where they left off, which I think is true to a certain degree. Although, interestingly, I think this album to me recalls more uh, the Dig Me Out, Hot Rock era than it is I mean, their last record was uh, The Woods from 2005, which was actually doing a lot with, uh, with much larger sort of soundscapes than they had worked with before. There's like a seven-minute song on it, and they're just doing a lot more with sort of studio pyrotechnics. But, I mean, this is a 10-song album that's like 33 minutes long. So why, how has that translated into renown? Obviously, there's a certain set of people, like women who listened to or dated people who listened to indie rock in the 90s, which I guess Dana and I would classify ourselves as both falling into the category. <laughs> but you were telling a story on a Slate email alias a couple of weeks ago about trying to teach Slater Kinney to some of your students and how their reputation has has traveled down to the next generation. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I had this experience where when the, when the reunion was announced last semester, I was teaching uh, basically an American music history class to about 30 undergraduates. And I came in the day that the reunion was announced and was all excited and asked my class if, you know, they were excited. And I just got blank looks. Um, and, like, no one in the class had heard of them. And these are, these are with it kids. And what was funny was that a bunch of them were Portlandia fans and were, like, pleasantly shocked to find out that Carrie Brownstein had once been in a band. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. They're, I mean, in terms of their critical reputation, they really are, I mean, they're, they're a critic band, for better and worse. I think that with bands that garner that much praise, uh, I think that there can sometimes be a public consensus that they're, they're really great, but maybe they're not fun. You know, it's music that people think of as, like, homework or eating your vegetables or something. But I, I think that, like, I mean, I just think that that's really untrue, that there is so much fun and joy and exuberance in Slater Kinney's music. I'm curious, though, about this, like, eat your vegetables, do your homework quality, because I mm-hmm. don't find that totally wrong in some way. Like, the, the the albums I love, I love, but there is something dense. It's like a dense thicket, their music. Like, I, I don't know that you immediately hear the song and you're like, ooh, I'm bopping along. I can't stop singing it. It's almost like you have to kind of... You have to, like, mine, you have to, like, dig into the music. I'm now mixing my metaphors. Steve, you mentioned not being um, super entranced by them. I wonder if you have thoughts on what makes them somewhat impenetrable-seeming. So, uh, you know, it's funny because I they're a great rock and roll band. I mean, full stop. They they really are. No qualifications. Whatever asterisk I assign uh, Slater Kinney is entirely uh, personal to me, and I think it's just generational. So I like completely bonded with that first, you know, wave of punk bands, you know, just the CBGB bands and the, and obviously the British uh, invasion punk bands in the late '70s when I first started listening to you know rock and roll. That that the timing there was just too perfect. And then I had a second window with Nirvana, which was kind of the grad school punk 
band indie indie and punk band listening years with Nirvana and Superchunk and all the obvious ones from the early 90s and I I just I feel as though that window is just shutting a little bit by 95 when their first album came out and I was trending in the direction of lulling my brain to sleep with music that you could half listen to or substitute out for you know NPR um, by the time Slater <laughs> came along so. yeah I I mean that seems totally reasonable but I also do for me, part of it, too, is that the lyrics aren't the point in the same way as, you know, the like, I mean, there's a there's the young woman thing, like it was awesome to listen to them as a young woman in 1995. But for me, listening to like Liz Fair and her lyrics and her language based, narrative based interpretation of the female experience was much more emotionally potent for me. And Slater Kinney just sounded good like it sounded dense and rich and interesting and like there were these little gemmy moments within the songs that I looked forward to Liz Fair is, is really in the singer-songwriter tradition right and it, it is sort of about storytelling and about expressing emotions and I, and I feel like Slater Kenny is much more they are truly a three-piece rock band you know they sort of they all have to be together in order to create that sound and it doesn't feel like any one sensibility is being expressed but that their sensibilities are fusing in some way that's also reflected in the fact that both Corin Tucker and Carrie Brownstein sing on different songs so that it's a, it's a band with not only one voice to it right I feel like one of the things that, that, that makes them more complicated is that they make this music that is somewhat I think the lyrics are important and they do they print the lyrics with every album which is which is saying something about what their significance but uh, they're not confessional. And I feel like that's like something that is really, uh, that there's an, still an expectation, particularly among female musicians in rock music, that they're going to be writing these songs that are super personal, like it's this, this singer-songwriter tradition um, kind of hanging over everything. Yeah, on that note, why don't we listen to Price Tag from the new album, which is a slightly more lyrics-forward song than some of the others we've talked about, but still has some of that obliqueness. This is unrelated to the lyrical content of that song specifically, but what I thought hearing it was just that Corin Tucker has one of those voices that completely makes the band. She just it's, it's so distinctive, you immediately know that it's her voice. And to me, it's sort of in a category, Jack, with some other kind of 90s voices. You know, it's like, like Eddie Vedder, you know, or like um, Michael Stipe, I guess, more of an 80s voice. But these kind of voices that seem to invest even simple lyrics or lyrics that you can't understand or lyrics that don't make any sense with this excess of, you know, kind of... Um, kind of emotional power. Right. I mean, it's 9 a.m. We must clock in. Like, that That could be a terrible lyric, actually, in the wrong hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, but but somehow it works. But there's something about that banshee wail of her voice that kind of lifts. I mean, I'm not even saying they're, they're inferior lyrics that she's lifting up. I'm just saying that, they, that she, she infuses them with something extra. Yeah, there's this great tension that the best pop and rock music has of, like, whether it's the singer or the song. You know, I mean, this is like... I think, you know, going back to if you look at Motown songs, you know, a song like, like My Girl has potentially uh, really stupid lyrics, except when David Ruffin sings them, they sound like the most profound, you know, I've got sunshine on a cloudy day is like the most beautiful sentiment anyone's ever expressed. All right. Well, the band is uh, Slater Kinney. The album is No Cities to Love. Check it out. Tell us what you think of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. And the wonderful critic is Jack Hamilton of Slate. Jack, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks again for having me. All right. Now is the moment in our show where we talk about our other sponsor. Julia, what do we have? The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored this week by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, airing Sundays at 8 on HBO, starting this weekend, February 8th. The Jinx is filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part explanation of the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders spanning four decades. It exposes long-buried information discovered during their seven-year investigation of the series of unsolved crimes and was made with the cooperation of Durst, the man at the center of the mysteries, and the reclusive scion of a New York real estate empire. Durst came to know Jarecki after the release of his feature film, All Good Things, starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst, which I think we talked about on the show, right, Dana? Yeah, I believe we did. Yeah, so Durst has consistently maintained his innocence, and he remains a free man today. So that's The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, which starts February 8th, Sundays at 8, only on HBO. All right, Steve, what's next? 
All right. Well, it's that time of year again. We're joined by Seth Stevenson, Slate's own Seth Stevenson, to talk about the Super Bowl ads. Seth, we had a lot of stuff this year. We had reverse snob appeal beer, Liam Neeson, race car dad. And yes, the nationwide dead kid, as you summed it up in your piece, you said after a full year of discord and at outrage, Super Bowl advertisers went way somber. Why don't we begin there? What what got into their heads? Why did they think or why did they think this was the way to get into our heads? Yeah, it seemed like after a year filled with strife, they really wanted to uh, make ads that encourage us to just be with each other, to just consider each other's struggles and have a heart. And there was a lot of uplift. There were a lot of ads about eliminating hate. Coke made an ad about sort of scrubbing hate off of the internet. Good luck with that, Coke. And uh, <laughs> by, by pouring it on your servers. <laughs> yeah, you know, and this it, this is the second year running, actually, that the ads have been a little bit toned down. Last year also, I mean, the ads used to be a lot of farting animals and people getting hit in the nuts with balls. And, and it, this, you know, the last two years, a lot of that has been gone. The ads have been a little bit more staid. And this year they went sort of off the chart stayed. They just were so somber. It was so dark. We had dead kids. We had absent fathers. It was it was sad. It was bleak. Yeah, it was it was like jaw-droppingly grim at times. And we'll listen to a couple of the, the key ads on that front in a moment. But the thing about Super Bowl ads as a cultural moment that's fascinating to me is that it's everybody trying to game each other out. It's like the marketers are trying to game out both what will drive their consumers to purchase their product and also the like world to think highly of them as a brand, even if they're not the target consumers because so many eyes are on these ads. And then the world's cultural critics look at the ads, which are reflecting back what we supposedly want, to see what we we can supposedly clean about what they think we want, snake eating its own tail of of perceptual analysis of where we are as a culture is always a little bit um, intense. And it's a kind of a drag when an event of men bashing each other's heads in and like cheerleaders and pom-poms really, like they feel like that's the right forum to tell us that things aren't going great. That, that always feels grim to me. Like I, I like it better when the Super Bowl ads are more fun. But let's listen to the most controversial one, right? This is the, the dead kid ad. travel the world with my best friend and I won't ever get married. I couldn't grow up because I died from an accident. At Nationwide, we believe in protecting what matters most, your kids. Together, we can make safe happen. (laughs) Stop trying to make safe happen. Nationwide. I mean, it's, it's like, I happening. just, I don't, I want my children to be safe. Yeah, I suppose it's good for there to be public service announcements that remind everybody to tether their TV to the wall. And But it's like, it, it is not a large cultural problem that American parents are insufficiently worried about their children, right? Like Julia, it's the number one cause of death for children is accidents. Did you not watch the ad? I did watch the ad, but I just, I mean, I think it's totally fair to say we have all this attention. Let's raise awareness for this important issue. That's a completely legitimate thing to do. And the ad did, it was shocking. It was unexpected, like in terms of tone and just the baldness of having a kid be like, I can't because I'm dead. Like it was in your face. Part of the problem was it started out like it was going to be just another heartwarming ad. It was sort of this Walter Mitty Jr. thing where the kid's sailing a boat through rough seas with his dog or he's flying on a hang glider. And then the kid, the kid's dead. And we're looking at pictures of smashed television on the ground and overflowing bathtubs. There was a real jarring shift in tone in the middle of the ad. But I don't think that's the problem. I think that's what's successful about it. That's why we're talking about it. But to me, the thing that was queasy about it was okay, it's fine to do a public service announcement, but like, it's an insurance company that's doing this? Like, so what's the insurance company's gambit here? Like, they want attention to remind you to get what kind of insurance? What kind of insurance helps you with your dead kid? Like, well, Nationwide stepped up the next day to say this was not an ad to sell insurance, right? I mean, if they wanted to do a true PSA, they could have just not put their logo on it and actually sponsored a public service announcement that sends you to this kid safety website or whatever. But, in fact, they did frame it as a commercial. But the next day, right, the executives at Nationwide were kind of walking it back and defending this this commercial by saying, well, it is it is not meant to, st- to sell insurance but to start a conversation. Actually, let's talk about one of the other most disturbing ads of the night, 
the Nissan ad. And this one we'll listen to, but basically it's just the sound of Cats in the Cradle. It's basically a wordless ad with that music as the backing track. But Dana will describe a bit what transpires in it. I arrived just the other day. So as we hear the opening strains of Harry Chapin's sad ballad about father-son neglect and separation, we see the life of a little boy. We see him get born. He's growing up. His dad is always going away to drive a Nissan in a Formula One race. Is that right, I think it was Formula One. It was some sort of open wheel competition, yeah. The song goes on as we see his dad competing, the son playing alone, the mother waiting for him alone at home, anxious for his life but he makes it through the crash. The kid playing with a toy car. By the way, this is a 90-second ad. This just is like a lifetime movie. Yeah, they spent a lot of money associating their brand with a... With absent fathers. Family estrangement. Fathers in peril, never at home. <laughs> I mean, to me, this ad, I feel like even more so than The Dead Kid, this ad is just trolling. It's just, it's selling like a negative association with his product in order to grab your attention. I really don't get the strategy This here. was the scene that really confused me where the mom is watching the dad on television in a race and the dad is involved in a, in a really like fiery crash. And then she, the mom start is, is really tense. She wonders if the dad's going to survive. And then he comes out of the car and she breathes a sigh of relief. But like there's a tear coming down her face because she's so emotionally wrecked by it. And then I guess the payoff for Nissan at the end is that eventually... The dad has a moment of recognition like 16 years and 90 seconds later that he's letting his son grow up before it's too late. And so he shows up to, like, pick up his son from school. I don't know. The kid looks like a junior. Like, the clock is running out. And the dad shows up in just, like, a normal family sedan-type Nissan to be with his son. So the message is don't be a race car driver. Don't I don't I didn't understand what they were saying. And they I mean wait they, a second. I, I think the I don't I don't in any way endorse them, but I think the emotional ploy that the ad is attempting to use is that this race car represents the selfishness of the father, his careerism, his alienation from his family, and a Nissan represents adult commitment, love, paternity, properly owned. And so that it's that shot of the kid stopping and then the next shot, the cut to the Nissan, which represents you know everything this father should have been all along. That's complicated um, by the fact that he's racing a Nissan. So when he's do, putting himself at risk, they're kind of trying to have it both ways where they're like, you can drive this hot, fast, dangerous Nissan. And then they show, you know, the safety capabilities of the race car Nissan. And then at the end, but you can also have this family-friendly mm-hmm. Nissan. That well, to, me, to me, that's a conceit that works in the storyboard. Like in the meeting, when they came up with the idea of this meeting, that's like, right, it's a perfect dad. We'll show both sides for like, you know, emasculated dads who feel sad that they just have to buy like a boring family sedan to schlep kids around instead of an exciting car. We'll show them that Nissans are actually like like hot rod power machines and that you've made like a masterful choice to be present for your son and your family sedan Nissan has the engine of a Formula One car purring inside it. But the tone of the ad is just like, you fucking asshole. You finally woke up a moment too late. Your like grudging sedan purchase doesn't isn't really going to solve <laughs> or salve the wounds of this family. Well, I mean, also they just underestimated the power of that music choice. Like there is nobody who doesn't get incredibly profoundly depressed about their own family dynamics upon hearing Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin, right? I remember as a child lying in bed hearing that song and crying. It's just so depressing. And by the way, he died in a car crash. I mean, that's... Very poor taste again. Yeah. So, and that was actually one of a few dad-themed ads we had. We had Dove uh, Men Plus Care doing an ad where with, with children saying daddy and, and dads, and there was something about how strength comes from caring and, and being a great dad is about showing that you care. And then there was another ad for Toyota Camry that showed this dad protecting his daughter and dancing with her at the school dance and standing up for her and then dropping her off. I guess she was joining the military and he drops her off at the airport to go join the military and he's weeping in the car as she leaves. But why was this the year of the somber dad, of the somber weepy dad? What is it? What is it about masculinity this year? What's going on? Steve, you're the dad on this show. He's too choked up to answer. Seth, why do we book you on the show if you can't provide that answer? Let's let's go. What is it? I mean, isn't it partly just backlash? You were here two years ago to talk about the year of the unbelievably sexist ads, right? I can't remember now what the examples were, but all the the year that that it was just all about sort of terrified masculinity grasping onto its last few 
beloved stereotypes. Yeah, and the pendulum has swung the other way. We had that always ad about fight like a girl, run like a girl. Uh, we had the line in the T-Mobile commercial with Sarah, Sarah Silverman and Chelsea Handler. There's this funny little line where Sarah Silverman apparently has like an obstetrics clinic inside her mansion and she delivers a baby and she hands it to the mother and says, sorry, it's a boy. Oh, yeah, that is a great line. We've kind of gone in the other direction with that. I, I, I'm not sure, but so so we're... I, I thought it was an interesting choice by by Dove to make their brand the, the brand of dads. I mean, that's it's cool. I am all for uh, dads who show that they care. Um, but do guys want to brand themselves as like a Dove guy? It's like when you when you lather up your hair in the morning or lather up your armpits with your with your body soap. Do you want to think of yourself as being like a caring dad, or do you want to think of yourself? I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not a dad. I can't really. Lie. Steve, when you lather up in the morning in the shower. Do you want to be reminded of familial obligations? <laughs> Mostly I want to come on here and do my show and be reminded of lathering up my armpits in the morning. <laughs> Seth. Well, also um, like the shower as a parent is like your one respite from familial <laughs> obligations. Like you have eight minutes to yourself. It's Nobody's true. You should have you. like nightclub scented soap in there. <laughs> smells like cigarettes. The thing that I thought about that ad was that I feel like Dove is usually so on point with female, like exploiting female self-esteem issues and feminism for corporate gain. Like they are very nuanced and intuitive in sort of how they they had the Dove Real Bodies campaign. They had some campaign where women like took a placebo serum to make themselves feel better. And I, I, whatever, they're always doing these things with women and how they should feel great about their real selves. Very nice. This seemed slightly weird, like basically they're desperately trying to get men to buy like bath and body products and care about them as a category because men maybe don't as much or something. Sure, shampoo, soap, whatever, but like face cream, you know, men and face cream, it's not like a locked and loaded purchasing choice for all men. And to me, the metaphor was so strained. It was like, it's important for you to care about your children and caring about them is what makes you strong. So you also have to care about your face skin to be strong. Well, and the, I did not find that persuasive. The other argument is that a lot of women watch the Super Bowl and a lot of women buy the the grooming products for their families, including for their husbands who are fathers. And so maybe the idea is you, mom, you, when you're at the, at the store and you're buying grooming products for your husband to use in the shower, this product will make your husband a better father who shows strength through caring for his so children. So much has been promised in this ad. <laughs> Um, I mean, obviously, the larger context here is that it has been a terrible year for gender politics within the NFL between its two very prominent domestic abuse and child abuse cases that it handled poorly, not to mention the larger issues of concussions and violence. And just there are there are actual physical life and death things that the NFL as a league and football as a sport handles extremely badly. And so the notion that you would then pile on top of that a lot of like disregard for women might have been a bit much. Like it doesn't seem crazy to me that the marketing agencies of America would have been like, this isn't the year for like, you know, cleavage and cupcakes. Like, let's just tone it in. Yeah. And Madison Avenue always wants to be on top of the zeitgeist and feel like they're connecting with the tenor of the times. And so, yes, as you were saying earlier, I guess we're, we're, we're looking in the mirror and reflecting back at ourselves and we all, we all need someone to pat us on the back and tell us it's going to be okay. And the dead kid is going to come to our rescue. <laughs> I would have patted you on the back, but I died from an accident. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. Well, Seth, uh, this is our uh, annual ritual, and it's always such a pleasure. Thanks for coming on to talk Super Bowl ads. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. Now is the moment in our show where we endorse. Dana, what do you have? All right. So this week I'm going to endorse a, a blog post on the wonderful site Public Domain Review, which everybody should know and follow anyway, because it's just a, a great place to read about essentially any sort of image or writing in the public domain. And there's some wonderful writing on there. But this particular post is by Lewis Carroll Scholar, and it's about the long Lewis Carroll nonsense poem, The Hunting of the Snark, which I had not actually read or, or read very much about before, even though I knew a few of the lines from it. So The Hunting of the Snark is sort of along the lines of Jabberwocky, the poem from uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I can't remember which of the two books that, that one is in. But this is a much, much longer version of a, of a nonsensical poem about a hunt. And uh, it's 141 verses long, I believe, and was published in pamphlet form a few years after Alice. And uh, so there's just this really great sort of close reading and explanation of the hunting of the snark that's also accompanied by a few of the beautiful Henry Holiday illustrations for the poem, which I had never seen before. So you think of John Tenniel as the illustrator 
of Lewis Carroll, right? And this guy, Henry Holiday, has a somewhat similar style in that they're these very intricate etchings, like packed with lots of little curious beasts in all the corners, but also just a very different style. So it's, it's, it's kind of cool to see Jabberwocky and Tenniel and Carroll, but through a different lens. That sounds awesome. So again, it's on Public Domain Review, and it's Edward Wakeling's post on Lewis Carroll and the Hunting of the Snark. Fantastic. Julia, what do you have? This is one of those endorsements that I think will sound to many of our listeners like I'm just endorsing the sun or like oxygen because it is such a pure and unadulterated good that anyone who has come to that appreciation already will feel that this is just bone crushingly obvious. Broad City, which we talked about a couple, you know, last year, I think when it premiered, has blossomed into like the single funniest, best thing that you can possibly watch on television right now. It is so good. It's so assured in its own voice. It's so dirty. It depicts a kind of womanhood that is, it feels like truly next gen to me. Like it is just beyond, it is beyond debate how autonomous and in charge of their own existences these women are. And it's exhilarating to watch. So uh, if you kind of watched a couple and then trailed off or haven't tuned into Broad City yet, you should do so immediately. It's so good. Have you guys been watching it? Have you kept up with it? I watched it when we talked about it on the show. I mean, to tell you the truth, I will watch the second season. I actually just saw Broad City interview Slater Kinney as part of our our prep for that Slater Kinney segment. But I kind of haven't felt like Broad City is all that in the little bit of exposure I've had to it. But I probably just need some more. I I almost think we should do it for another segment. I really feel like it's, um, I don't know, I just love assured execution. Like, I love when people are just nailing the thing that they're doing. And they they are, I find them really impressive. Mm. Okay, well, um, uh, I'm reaching around for an endorsement. And here's what my hand lands on, which is... um, I started last night reading Orwell's wonderful essay about Charles Dickens called Charles Dickens. And uh, Orwell is just, he just is the perfect nonfiction writer and great critic. And he writes about Dickens with uh, utter clarity. And I don't have much more to say about it than that, but it was a pleasant surprise. I'd never read him on, on Dickens, and it's a great experience. Where do you find that essay? There, well, there was a two-volume collection, a fairly recent two-volume collection of his essays, I think one is edited by George Packer and the other might be edited by Keith Gessen, though I'm not 100% sure, um, selected and edited by. And it's in those. Uh, we'll, we'll post a link to it. All right. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. The month of May